0: This program is intended for mature audiences only. Altitude Adjustment may contain language, images, or other content that some may find offensive. Your discretion is advised. Welcome to Altitude Adjustment. Good afternoon, I'm Leon Davis joined today with, uh, by Leonard, uh, Leonard Davis and Warren Harper and our special guest today, we're having, we're talking to trauma, um, trainer. Uh, and, and I had this whole spiel in my head. Um, but we're, I'm going to end it with just Dr. Finneka. And welcome to the show, doctor.
1: Thank you so much. Thank you so much.
0: So, um, we were having an awesome, awesome discussion. Uh, before we started. And I actually want to come back to that because I think there were some very good points that were raised and uh, I want to explore things just a little bit. Um, But the first thing I want to do is uh, I've been dying to ask about that painting behind you. (laughs) So if you could tell me a little bit about that, I would really appreciate it.
1: Oh, no problem. So I am an avid traveler. And that is, that's one of, I think my vices. So that's what we spend our money on in my house is traveling. And when I do travel, I usually buy art. And so all around my house is art from all different places. Um, This piece behind me actually came from the Dominican Republic and I bought it for 70 us dollars in the Dominican Republic and it was on a canvas so i was able to just you know take it off and that's what i usually do is take it off the canvas i'll roll it up stick it in my suitcase bring it back and then i get it framed but i love it uh because of the music musical aspect i have a musical family so it fits right in with us here in the household
0: no very
2: great uh, did you did you have something warren no, I was thinking uh, I need to send her a link to our other podcast that's musically oriented. Oh, well, we'll make sure we take care oh, of that.
1: please do. Yeah. Yeah.
0: So Dr. Finique's web, web address is, is going to be in the show notes. If you'd like to tell us a little bit about yourself and what you do.
1: Sure. So I am a licensed trauma therapist and a transformational trauma specialist and I am also a Reiki master and a doctor of behavioral health. And so all of that together, uh, I like to call myself a master healing alchemist. And that's because I take all of those different modalities, all of that different training, all of those, everything that I have been certified in and I put it all together and my goal is always to effectively and efficiently heal my patients. So I don't want them with me forever and ever. Uh, My goal is to provide them with the tools and the things that they need to heal themselves holistically. So I work from a mind, body, spirit perspective. And I, that means spirit, the mental health, the physical health. Those are all of the components that I have to be considerate of when I'm treating someone Uh, especially when it comes to trauma because trauma affects us in so many different ways. And a lot of us are unaware of exactly what it looks like, especially when it lays dormant inside of us, meaning we haven't done anything really to start to heal it. Um, And so you'll find that a lot when it comes to childhood trauma, because a lot of children are not necessarily given the tools and the resources that they need to heal that trauma. And then they become adults that have childhood trauma that has not been healed. And so the trauma has had time to evolve within that person, and it starts to show up in their behaviors and the way that they think and the way that they view people and the way that they respond to people. So when treating someone, I think it's ideal that you have to work from a holistic perspective. And so that's what I tend to do. And I I like to work specifically with women, uh, women entrepreneurs. And the reason being is because a lot of times they're at a place where they're trying to build Something And that's why I call I call myself the master healing alchemist, because they're in a place where they are engaged in some form of alchemy. They are trying to create. And what they find is that they have things that are holding them back. And that's usually the trauma. And it's things that they haven't necessarily dealt with. So they can't get to the place of achieving everything that they're wanting to achieve in their lives, um, in their relationships, in their business, in their finances, and their personal development, because they have... These negative thoughts and limits and beliefs that are stopping them. So that's where I come in.
0: So, um, what's the difference between trauma and a bad day?
1: And a band aid.
0: Bad bad day.
1: You oh, know, bad some, day.
0: You've had a, you've had a terrible <laughs> I'm, experience. I'm like,
1: well, you might need a, you may need a band aid. <laughs>
0: that's heard. true. At the end of it. So yeah. So what what is how do you <laughs> identify trauma versus you know you've had a bad experience and that has helped you grow.
1: So the thing is you can grow from trauma, you can also grow from a bad day. But the trauma piece is something that really jolts. It caused, it causes a jolt in in what in in you. And what I mean by that is it's like a it can be a horrific event or something that leaves a scar. And the scar can be physical, the scar can be mental. Um and so if it's and it and it can be big or it can be small. So It can be as simple as, I'll give you the perfect example. Um, My son, I have a two-year-old who likes to jump off of stuff. And he climbed on the ottoman and jumped off. And he, let's say, he, this hasn't happened, but let's say he falls and he hurts his mom. That may cause him to not do that again. And the reason why is because that was traumatic for him, right? And okay. so it leaves an imprint. It's something that then alters the way that he responds in the future and the decisions that he makes. Now, on the other side, it can be something as tragic as us um, witnessing someone being murdered, you know, in a trauma. And then that also leaves an imprint, okay? But the imprint then is more so physical. Um, and it, that can cause anxiety and fear that can lead to things like um, being jumpy or depression or sadness or paranoia. So trauma, trauma varies. There isn't just one type of trauma. It doesn't just look one way. It doesn't always have to be drastic. And that's the thing. A lot of people, they think that trauma has to be something like a huge episode that rocks your whole world. But no, it can be something small. And sometimes we don't even realize that something has been traumatic for us until it's time for us to then do something else or consider doing something else. And then we're like, no, I don't want to do it. Well, why don't you want to do it? Because I'm scared. But why are you scared? (laughs) And it could be, again, that as simple as my two year old jumping off the ottoman and falling on his face. And now he's scared to do that.
2: One of you guys wanted to step in. Yeah, yeah, I had a question or two. So you you talked about uh, mental illnesses or things of that nature being connected. Let's say a person, I'm, I'm speaking of a real person, it's a family member, say a person has been traumatized at a very early age, but this person also may suffer from diagnosis like MMR, uh, schizophrenia, affective order, a combination of those things really makes them kind of low functioning. What can you effectively do when a person's at that's, in that situation?
1: So um, a lot of times what I would say is that um, the trauma is there. Therapy is always a good, um, it's always a good tool to use, I would say, um, for anyone that endures any type of trauma, as long as the person is ready to really utilize it. So if you have someone that may have, that's, I guess, lower functioning um, and not necessarily able to articulate or understand how the trauma has impacted them i would say the therapy coupled with i'm assuming that there's some type of medical intervention because you mentioned uh, it's a disorder um and schizophrenia so when you get there there's some type of medical intervention so some type of medication sure. um that's in place as well um and then maybe some type of behavioral and coping techniques that can be used um to help that person as well so if they feel like they are becoming overwhelmed a lot of things if if we if a lot of times we can really help with showing a person or demonstrating how to use the coping tools. So for someone like that, I would say having the having the behavioral component in place where you can practice the strategies with them, not just give them the strategies and say, hey, take this mm-hmm. and, and go use it but having someone in place to help to actually practice those strategies with them for coping. I think that would be, um, the most helpful, um, in that situation.
2: So in other words, someone else would have to learn the skills to kind of like work with them one-on-one.
1: Definitely. So it's, it's all about the right, I think the right support. So the thing is that there are not, I don't, I, from my experience, there's not a lot of therapists that's trained in developmental um, disorders, and so when you get into um, like MMR, when you get into autism spectrum disorder, when you get into you know th- disorders on that um, on that level, you have to you have to have acquired a special skill set and training and um, history in working with that population. For it to be effective, and so because you have to be creative in the way in which you, um, the way in which you implement the therapy, it's it's not it's never a one size fits all type of thing, and so oh. all it all depends on who you're working with, their needs, because the part to it is that you have to meet your client where they are for you to be effective, and so like if someone is not necessarily you know specifically trained, then that will help. The other thing that I would also say is bringing in a family member. Or having someone that can be a part of that learning and that training to help that person when they're not with the therapist or when they're not with their supports um, outside of the family, because they will still need someone that can kind of help to probably talk them through it and you know kind of trigger them to implement some of the coping strategies that are being given, you know, if something or when something happens, uh, because mm-hmm. it will again, it's practice. We. We say, yeah, I'm using I have these coping tools, so you can give someone a whole list of coping tools and coping methods, right? A whole mm-hmm. list. But the thing is that if you're, if they're not practicing, it's not it, it's not a part of their muscle memory, and so if it's not a part of their muscle memory, they won't naturally revert to using it right. you know when something happens. so the, the way that you do that is practice, 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 practice.
2: Yeah. That's, that's good information. I think the biggest problem in this case is person dealing with a person that pretty much thinks they know everything and is reluctant to, to accept different ideas and, and Mm -hmm. learn.
1: Mm -hmm. So that's the thing about healing is you have to also be ready and be receptive. Um, because if you're not then any, nothing that anyone gives you will help.
2: Yeah, that's true.
1: Good question.
0: Jeff question Leonard. All
1: right. Yeah. <clears throat> now what I'm
0: looking at is kids. How does trauma, what are some of the more common ways that trauma may manifest itself in children?
1: Um, so we are looking at childhood trauma, and I think there's also a level to this that we have to explore when we talk about children, so the thing about children is children are often born into situations in which trauma is present, Mm -hmm. um and so what that means is that you know they're coming into a space where maybe the parents have been traumatized or there's um different events that's happening within the home or they're being exposed to different things in school or in their environment or in their community and so the Mm -hmm. thing about children is that Unfortunately, children are usually put in, put, put in situations where they are given, the, the trauma is given to them, um, and it's usually from the people that are around them, their, their caregivers, their siblings, the family members, um, and so it's given to them. And oftentimes, the trauma is not addressed. And so you have a lot of children, like I said, they become adults then that have trauma um, from childhood because the trauma has not been addressed. And with the trauma not being addressed and that person then becoming an adult, they're having to address or choose not to um, address the trauma from childhood in adulthood. And the, the trauma and the side effects of it has evolved over time um from childhood to adulthood not to mention then some of the traumatic events that may occur to them Mm -hmm. when they become adults so everything kind of gets compounded and it just keeps going keeps going um until that person you know decides that they want to deal with it and then they have to start taking the steps Mm -hmm. to heal themselves good question Mm
0: -hmm. so um so you were saying that that um parental trauma is passed on to the children uh, does that. So, so you, you, you have a parent who, um, has some, um, neurotic tendencies or some tendencies to, uh, uh, display or their trauma. And so the child then has to live in that world. And so whatever, um, whatever the parent is or the, the caregiver or the, um, authority figure, um, puts out into that, into that environment, the the children have to adapt. Does the, the, does the manifestation become the same when the child, uh, advances, or is there a different manifestation of the trauma?
1: So not necessarily. So, the, the piece to it is, um, and what you're referring to is generational trauma, so if the, if the, let's say, let's say, um, a mom is subjected to verbal and physical abuse in childhood in, in her home by her parents. Mm -hmm. And she, of course, it doesn't feel good to her, but it's what she's taught. Okay and then she later on you know has a child and she she then subjects and repeats and that that verbal and physical trauma so the way that she deals with her child when they're misbehaving is she beats them because she was beat and um even though it wasn't something that she enjoyed when she was younger it's what she was taught so it can definitely repeat that child then can they repeat those same patterns when they didn't have a child and, and it can kind of keep going. Um, but it, it can repeat. What stops it from repeating is someone in the cycle has to say, this is enough. I don't want to repeat. I don't want to continue repeating the cycle. I want to get the help that I need. I don't want this to be passed on to my children. So I grew up in a household. I have an old school mother. My mom is now 74 and we had like, she gave us whippings. And when we, you know, misbehaved, uh, my mom grew up in a household where she wasn't necessarily, you know, really loved on and affirmed. And so she was verbally abusive. And because of that, because that's what she was taught, that's what she gave us. And now that I have children, now that my sister has children, my sister's children are older than mine um, and they're in their 20s, but we've never spanked them. (laughs) And, you know, that was a conscious effort. It was a, because my mom, you know, because again, she implemented what she was taught, but we knew that that's not something that we wanted to implement with our children. So my children, I mean my sister's children, they've never, you know, had a weapon. They've they've never been, you know, beaten at all. Um, and then I have my two-year-old, and you know, he kind of runs the world and does what he wants. But you know, with with <laughs> with me, even just trying to implement boundaries with him, um, but I have to still be cog cognizant of that, you know, like when I, when I get frustrated, you know, like the other day, he, he is in a place now where he doesn't want milk on his Cheerios. And so I put the milk in a cup and I put the Cheerios in his bowl and he's eating his Cheerios and his milk is in the cup. And so he wants to drink the milk and he finishes the Cheerios out the bowl. And then he goes to pour the milk into the bowl and it spills everywhere and it's a whole disaster and he needs to leave to go to school. And so I feel myself get frustrated. Like your clothes are now wet. You need to leave out the door. You're going to be, you know, like I, but I feel, I feel it. I'm conscious of it. And in that moment, I say, I ask my husband, Hey, can you clean that up and give me his pants so I can take the pants and go put them in the dryer? But because I'm cognizant, I'm conscious of it, I don't even want to go near him because I feel that I'm already like I'm probably frustrated in the moment. You know what I mean? Right. Mm -hmm. So because I because I make that conscious effort and I try to be very clear on my own trauma and what that looks like, I have to stay on top of myself you get what i'm saying mm-hmm. so mm-hmm. even in my household there was domestic violence my husband and i genuinely love each other but of course we don't always agree with each other on stuff and you know we 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 have the two year old and then we also have a we have a 13 year old and a 12 year old that are my bonus children from him prior to us you know being together but the 13 year old lives with us and you know he lives in the house we raise him and he's 13. And you guys know what that means. Mm -hmm. So we have a toddler and a teenager. (laughs) And so, you know, it's, it is always, you know, if we don't agree, usually it's about the kids. And again, it's the, when we, when we don't agree, if one of us gets louder than the other, one of us usually just stops talking Mm -hmm. and that's on purpose because he knows like he's if of course he knows that my own history with domestic violence um and there are certain things that trigger me and so I if not him will just stop talking and I'm sure to someone on the outside it may look weird it could look weird (laughs) But then what we do is when we calm down, then we come back and then we talk about it or we'll send each other text messages like, I don't agree with you and this, you know, Understood. but the, 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 but, you, but just being conscious of my trauma history and being conscious of, you know, how that may show up and just being like, I, I have to stay on top of myself, which is extremely important. And so a lot of the work that I do with the women that I work with is you can't avoid it. And that's what a lot of us, we try to do. A lot of us, we try to avoid it. I don't want to talk about it. I don't want to think about it. I don't want to, you know, I, I don't want to do anything with it, but you really can't avoid it. Like, even if you don't talk about it, even if you don't want to work on it, it can show up, you know, like things are, tr- you you are triggered in everyday life. And a lot of times you're, you're triggered And you don't know when you're going to be triggered. And so if you try to avoid it, your responses will show that the trauma is there or has been there. You get what I'm saying? Like, like, and that's what I mean by if I if I avoid and I don't face the fact that, hey, you have witnessed domestic violence, you have like there's anger behind that. There's some rage behind that. There's some emotion behind that. If I just don't acknowledge it, you know, when my husband and I disagree, what is stopping me from just like yelling at him or, or becoming, becoming, um, you know, physically aggressive myself because that was what I was shown. And so you can't avoid it. You know, you have to really like own it take ownership of it it happened it's a part of your story it doesn't make you any less it doesn't make you any better but it's a part of your story and with it being a part of your story you have to be clear on how it has impacted you and you have to do the work to figure out how it shows up in your life how it shows up in how you think how it shows up in how you respond to others um how it shows up just period as a trauma response you know what does that look like you know so Um, we, we have to be conscious and cognizant, I think at all times.
0: So you, Mm -hmm. you're, you, you brought up, uh, so when you started talking about that topic, just so many questions like rushed to my head. So I'm going to, I'm going to try to address just one aspect of it. (laughs) Um, so there's the trauma we, because we initially started talking about, you know, children, um, people spanking their children and, uh, and then they're becoming a generational thing. And, and there's a movement to, um, curtail that, you know, so, but, um, it made me think, uh, about societal pressures that help reinforce trauma. So on Facebook, uh, t- from time to time I get these spank or no spank do you spank your kids mm-hmm. you know how 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 wonderful it was 20 years ago when we spanked our children and they and and they came out fine you know so mm-hmm. so we're there's societal pressures that continue to enforce that trauma that people don't understand mm-hmm. they don't see spanking as a trauma they don't see spanking as mm-hmm. unnecessary it is Correct. a means to mm-hmm. an end for them Mm -hmm. so i'm sorry go ahead and and address that
1: yeah i i i totally agree with you i think that um because i see them too and and my brother actually sent me one the other day and it was a meme about you know being getting older getting older and being able to take the belt from the parent and you know say i I don't want to be spanked or something Mm -hmm. and i think that Okay. So th- there's a couple pieces, I think within certain communities, there's a societal pressure, not in all communities. Mm-hmm. Um, and primarily, you know, black and brown communities mm-hmm. is way more normalized. Right. Um, as far as, you know, being physically aggressive, mm-hmm. uh, with your children and disciplining them in the physical manner, way, way more normalized in our communities. Um, whereas in other communities it is not. And so, I would I would even go farther to say that I've done community behavioral health work and with doing community behavioral health work and actually going into people's homes and me trying to provide an alternative to parents on discipline. And I've had someone say to me, Oh, well, we're we're not white. <laughs> and it's like Why, why, Mm what, what does that have to do with Mm -hmm. you not spanking your child? You know, like, I think we, we get to a, I think we get to a place where we start to normalize the abuse and we try to make it acceptable. And the way that you make it acceptable is to create memes about it and make it funny and to create jokes around it and, you know, oh, well, my mama used to spank my butt and we're just fine. Mm -hmm. But are you, are you really just fine? Like, are you really fine? You know what I'm saying? Like, Because I, I totally, I see it. You know, like there's so, there's so much that hides beneath the layers and we're not clear on how that affects us. I remember... My was it, I think it was my mom, and my mom saying, Go get a switch mm-hmm. <laughs> off mm-hmm. the tree. Mm-hmm. And my thinking is, You want me to <laughs> go get something for you too- to hurt me? Are you crazy? <laughs> like, <laughs> See, but, but understand the psychology behind it, you know what I'm saying? Like, <laughs> think about what that does to a person that they are, they are walking right Mm -hmm. to go get the thing that Mm -hmm. you're going to use to hurt them. And so we know what that all resembles, right? Right. Like, you know, so, (laughs) but it's, it's a psychological thing, you know, and I am all for disciplining your children, but disciplining them in a manner that helps them to understand why what they did was wrong or why you can't do certain things or why there's a boundary there, why that's not okay. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Because how many times (laughs) were you spanked and you still didn't, like then you still didn't learn your lesson. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Like there was, there there was still no lesson learned (laughs) out of being spanked. And so I think that's the part that is missing. Like, no, there has to be a lesson (laughs) that, to all of this, like, or else they're just going to do the same thing over again. You know, like my 13 year old (laughs) who every day, every night before he goes to bed, Hey, make sure your alarm clock is set so you can get Mm -hmm. up in the morning and and be on time for the bus. Mm -hmm. Is the alarm clock set every night? No, Mm -hmm. not at all. And he has to leave the house at 830 to catch the bus on time. So, you know what we do? Let we don't wake him up until mm-hmm. about eight mm-hmm. fifteen, and then he has 15 minutes to get up and run and do everything that he needs he's doing 15 minutes to get out the house on time to go catch the bus so he can't go to school looking all cute like he wants to because mm-hmm. there's girls and everything else and <laughs> but it's natural consequences mm-hmm. and the only reason we wake him up is because we don't want to have to drive him to school right so it's natural consequences mm-hmm. you know what i'm saying mm-hmm. so I, I i think it's about one and you said it where they're like, We turned out just fine. <laughs> did you did, you, did really you really turn out just fine? <laughs> yes. like,
2: <that's> the thing? <laughs> like I show well, you so I many people that didn't. You, know
1: <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> What'd you say, Warren?
2: <laughs> I never got spanked twice for the same thing. <laughs> <laughs>
1: that's good. You're good.
2: <laughs> well, I just think this good <laughs> for everybody else though. Me yeah, <laughs> a lot,
1: a lot <laughs> of people have though. <laughs>
0: I, I just think you know people don't, they they don't realize that the desire to hurt another individual for your benefit is not. It's not the best way for us to work forward. So so, spanking to them is a shortcut. It is a, it is a way to release whatever anger and frustration that I have, and yeah. to quickly turn things in the direction that I want, I can, I'm using force on my child to get them to do what I want. And yet, if someone tried to use force on us, we resent that and they don't recognize that it's actual force that they're using. Um, And so, and so there's a, uh, what what is the term, Um, uh, dissonance. Um. Do as I do. No, yeah. Well, it's 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 a kind of a dissonance. They don't they don't. They think that they're doing good, but they're they're actually Mm -hmm. doing bad, and they don't recognize that. Um. But Mm -hmm. but but anyway, I'm I'm gonna move on. Uh, Did one of you guys have a
1: question? Well, there's one more piece though, Mm -hmm. and this is the part, and you just made me think of it. In doing that, what it does is it it creates a fear in that person. Mm -hmm and i know my 13 year old and and i'm not picking on him but he's my best example right now i know i know my 13 year old he because of fear he will lie (laughs) because he doesn't want to get in trouble Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and so it's like i don't want you lying to me you know like to avoid getting in trouble and so why are you lying and he says oh because i'm scared i'm gonna get in trouble and his getting in trouble is we take his phone or you know he's on punishment or something like that but it's fear and so it's like i want you to be able to tell me you know what's going on and so he got into a fight in school one day and he called me he's like whispering and i'm like why are you whispering and he's like okay so if the school calls you i just need to tell you what happened first <laughs> and so and so like he's telling me what happened first and I'm stepmom Mm -hmm. he usually calls me before he calls dad because I don't respond the way that dad does right and Mm -hmm. so he's telling me what happened and I'm like okay and I'm like were you defending yourself or did you start the fight he's like I was defending myself and we always tell him you won't get in trouble if you're defending yourself because I expect you to, to defend yourself and so he you know he didn't get in trouble for the fight at all but you know I think you have to you have to figure out what kind of relationship you want with people in, in general. Mm-hmm. It's not just children. Mm-hmm. You have to figure out what type of relationship you want with them, what type of precedent you want to set with that person. And then that dictates how you respond when they don't do something that you like or that is up to your standards or that you're satisfied with. Because like you said, to, that's really what it is. It is really, you know, Leon, it's about... about that person not doing what you wanted them to do or them doing something other than what you would have wanted them to do. And then it's your frustration because you can't control what they did or can't control them. And so Mm -hmm. it's really about what type of relationship you want to build. Do you want that person openly communicating with you? Do you want them to feel like they can come to you when they do something that they're not supposed to? And so even for me, I had to make that decision that for my children, and this goes for all three of them because I consider my bonus kids my kids as well. But for my children, I want to be the person that they come to when they can't talk to, you know, their their dad or they can't talk to, you know, their biological moms. They need someone to talk to. You know, if you go to the party and they're drinking and or they're doing drugs and you don't want to drink and do drugs, I need you to know it is okay to text me and say, hey, I need you to come get me. I would mm-hmm. gladly come and get you. So it's all about the relationship. And I didn't have that with my mom growing mm-hmm. up because I was scared. And I was like, I can't tell her what's really happening and mm-hmm. what I'm really being exposed to and mm-hmm. what I'm really out here doing or what I'm really seeing because of fear. Mm-hmm. And I don't want that. So it's really about what kind of relationship you want to set with that child and with that person.
2: Did you guys, one of you guys have a question? Yeah, I had a question. So doctor, what if you had an event that occurred years ago, a long time ago, maybe. And when you think about this event, you might, it might trigger certain emotions or feelings. Is that a sure sign of some sort of trauma?
1: Definitely. Yes. So I, for years. Um, my, so my, I remember I was six years old. My dad was at my home. He didn't live with us. Him and my mom were not married, um, mm-hmm. but he was in the house. He had come to see me and somehow it turned into an altercation. Um, he's, she's on the floor. He's beating her up. We come into the kitchen, my sister and I, and we leave. And before he leaves, he comes out, no, we leave, I left, go sit on the stairs outside the apartment and he comes out and he comes over to me. And he's like, I'm going to come, I'm coming back to get you. And I'm like, okay. And I'm six. And then before he leaves, he's like, he yells to my mama coming back to get my daughter and I'm going to kill you B and he, you know, curses at her. And so he leaves. And the next day I go to school, like nothing happened. Like I had never seen that. I never, you know, mentioned it. And I knew because we had the whole rule, you know, Black and brown communities, what happens in my house stays in my house. You don't go out telling my business. So no one ever knew what was happening inside of our household, um, at least not from us as children. And I get out of school, I go to my grandmother's house after school because my mom's working. But when I get there this time, my mom is there. And she says to me, she calls me in the kitchen, three words that changed my life forever. And she's like, your dad died. And I remember at six in that moment, I was so confused. I felt really abandoned because he said he was coming back to get me. Um, I was angry because the last time I saw him, he was abusive towards my mom and Mm -hmm. I wanted him to not be able to hurt her. But of course I never wanted him to die. And so there were so many different things happening in my little six-year-old brain and never got therapy never really got to speak to anyone, never processed any of that. Um, I was a child, so I guess it was just assumed that I was okay and she'll be fine. Never spoke to anyone, but then that little one became the adult me (laughs) and all of that stuff that I felt, I still felt it. It didn't go anywhere. And so there was anxiety, there was depression. Um, I self harmed, so I would cut, um, when I had moments where my mom was, yelling at me or I was in trouble, I would, the first person I would want was my dad, because my mom is yelling and I'm like, I just need someone to save me and get me out of here. Um, But then he wasn't there. And so there was that anxiety, that depression piece, that anger that he wasn't there. I felt abandoned because he wasn't there, even though he died, I still felt abandoned. Um, and so as an adult, when it started, those things started showing up in my relationships, I had trouble trusting people. I I was, I was had trouble attaching to others. I had trouble loving others and, and putting myself in a vulnerable position with others. And when I would think about that whole situation, losing my dad, seeing the abuse, it would make me very angry. And I didn't even know how to identify the emotion. And so for a long time, I didn't. And it wasn't until I was like 34. And he died when I was six. Mm-hmm. It wasn't until I was about 34 to where I was really able to identify the emotion and what that looked like and how it impacted me and how it affected my relationships and start to really do the work. And I I was then able to say, you know what, I want something different from my life. I want to change. I want to start, you know, being active in changing this and attracting something else to me. Um, outside of me, you know, being angry and responding with anger, so definitely um, it it leaves an imprint. Definitely.
2: So between the time of the conflict and then he died, do- his death, how much time had passed? Was it?
1: That was the that was the next day.
2: The next and day. And so
1: literally, they they were in the house, and he left and he said i'm coming back to get my daughter and i'm gonna kill you and he called her the b word and he left and they found him the next day he had left his apartment mm. and he he had a heart attack on the stairs going down the stairs and he had the gun on him and everything
0: mm. oh wow mm. that, so that was a lot you're to talking
1: about some spiritual intervention yeah. mm-hmm. happening And again, and I can say that now, because it took me years to get to a place where I had to not be okay with it, but yeah, be okay with that. And really think about if there was not some type of spiritual intervention that had taken place, what would that then look like? You know, where would my sister and I be? Where would my dad be, you know? And would we be living with a family member somewhere, you know, if he was successful in doing so? Um, And so I, for a long time, I, God and I would have some words because (laughs) I was like, you know, why did this happen? And I reached a place in my life where I started to understand. And then I became thankful because for the spiritual intervention, because anything could have happened. Um, You know, my sister and I were there. It's possible that we wouldn't be alive it's possible, you know, I mean, you know, as they say bullets don't have names on them. So it's possible that any, you know, anything could have happened. Sure. It could have been my mom and us. And, you know, I don't know. I don't know, you know, I don't know what mental space my dad was in, but, you know, now as, as an adult, I see where people hurt people and then they turn around, they hurt themselves. So, you know, I just, I don't know, you know, no one knows what could have, but I reached a place in my life where I became grateful and I was able to forgive him as well um, because you know again we don't know you you just never know like what someone's going through or why people do the things that they do and what you know what that looks like and I don't really know you know the full length of his own mental illness if there was any mental illness I don't know the length of what state his mental health was in just in general. So, yeah, so I, I had to reach a point and do that work and just come to a resolve in a place of forgiveness on all levels, mm-hmm. um, in that situation so that I could move forward and, you know, start living my life from a, from a healing place for myself and for others.
0: Sure. Yeah. So, um, so I'm going to say, uh, uh, to my, to my two co-hosts, I have a couple of questions left. One is on the Reiki. And another is on, uh, her journey from watching her, her abusive relationship for her parents and having been in one and and the connections there. Um, but did you guys have, uh, so I want to try to squeeze those in. We've got about 17 minutes left. Did you guys have a question that you wanted to to get in? Yeah. I got one. If you're trying to talk to your kids, Mm because you know something affected them, and they hit this point that children sometimes do, no, nothing, nothing, but you can tell because you have some knowledge of your child. Is there a good rule of thumb when to let that go and just go with what they say, or do you keep pushing, you keep
1: pressing till something comes out? What's the best way to handle that? So I go through that a lot <laughs> with teenagers, yay, um, yeah. so, so much fun. <laughs> oh yeah, yeah. Um, But yeah, we, we go through that a lot and it's like nothing, nothing's wrong, but clearly something is wrong with you. Um, but what I usually do is I try different approaches with him. So, you know, when he hits the door from school, um, it might not be the best time then for me to really ask him and, and expect to get an answer. Um, but I will ask like, you know, how was your day? Are you okay? What's going on? Um, and usually with with my son, if I, like, I may try then, right? And that doesn't work. Or I may say, hey, call me to, come with me to the store. Um, and, you know, when we're in the car driving or out by ourselves, and I may ask him again, like, hey, what was up with you yesterday? Like, what's going on? And I may have a better chance of him giving me an answer. You know, if that doesn't work, then I may try again um you know the other alternative is sometimes it helps if that kid has someone else to talk to outside of their parents and mm-hmm. so you know having a therapist or having someone like a uncle or or aunt or a big brother or you know big sister or something like that you know kind of have that conversation outside of i think a parent um that's all that's also an option like you have to definitely be good with removing your ego from the situation and, you know, having, you know, allowing someone else to come in if needed and have that conversation outside of you if that person's not responding.
0: Okay. So the first thing I'm going to say is, uh, did you have a question, Warren? Did you have something you wanted to cover real quick?
2: No, 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 go ahead.
0: So, so the first thing uh, I'm going to say is I am an alternative um, medicine skeptic. That doesn't mean I don't. I don't uh believe that it has some value. I'm just always skeptical. Uh and so my first inclination is um what's that? Why is that? Tell me more. So ex- why are you,
1: why are you why are you a skeptic?
0: No, no, that I'm just saying as my wow. skepticism is that I hear something new and okay. and I'm like, "Hmm. Yo, know, tell me more. I, I got to know this. I want to know that." So so I okay. we I looked up the reiki uh Reiki, uh-huh. Ricky, Reiki? Okay. Uh, Reiki, yes. So 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 kind of help me understand Reiki. Riki? Reiki? Reiki. Uh, Reiki? Very mm-hmm. good. I'm I'm okay. gonna learn this pronunciation before we okay. eat. Reiki? So so help me understand Reiki and why you chose that.
1: Well, um, I think it's all in how you look at things. I Um, As I mentioned in the beginning, I'm an uh, avid traveler. And so with me traveling, I've been exposed to just different modalities uh, from different parts of the world. And um, a part of that is Reiki, which is a traditional Japanese um, technique. And um, if you, the, the best way that I, the best thing I can compare Reiki to is Tai Chi. And because Tai Chi involves energy mm-hmm. and cleansing energy and balancing energy. And so what Reiki does, it's the same thing, but it involves a practitioner most of the time. And so a lot of it is about just um, clearing any energy blocks that a person may have. Um, there are these things that we all have. They're called chakra points. And we have, there are so many of them, but there are um, seven, seven, key ones that a lot of, that most people usually focused on. Um, but with dealing with those chakra points, um, it's like, you may have heard of like the third eye. Mm-hmm. Um, and so the third eye is a, that's a chakra point and the third eye chakra point is linked to your intuition. And so when doing Reiki, what the practitioner is aiming to do is remove any blockages along those chakra points and within your body. Um, that may be stopping you from connecting and receiving um, the messages and that great energy from the universal forces, and so thus the Creator, that's um, angels, that, that's spirit guides, that's you know all of those those energetic beings that we look to for guidance and look to for comfort and look to you know when we're we're going through something or just on a day to day. Um, you want to be able to communicate with them and, and and hear and then also speak, right, and prayer and meditation. So um, to do so, though, you have to have a clear aura or a clear energy field, and you can't have, you know, those blockages. Those blockages stop us from being able to really be able to do that um, as effectively as we possibly could. So that's in a nutshell what Reiki is. I... I, I do use Reiki, of course, but I also use um, other techniques. So when it comes to therapy, it's, you know, cognitive behavioral therapy. And um, I use, I'm trained in basic EMDR, um, for which is specifically for trauma. I'm a clinical, I'm a certified clinical um, hypnotherapist. I, I, because I'm very clear on my purpose and why I am here, um, my God-given purpose, which is to heal others. And so because I'm a healer, my job is to attain any and all knowledge that I can to make sure that I can heal the people that are called to me for me to heal. And so of course, I'm not for everyone and everyone's not for me and I'm okay with that. But for the people that are called to me for me to heal, um, you know, me having an array of modalities that I can use with them is, you know, it, it it's necessary. So it provides an option. Um, it provides a gateway. It provides space for me to be efficient and be effective in my healing. And I believe that it also contributes to me not having to have patience with me for years and years and years, uh, because I use those various modalities. And that helps to kind of speed things up and, and and get them to where they need to be a lot faster than just traditional talk therapy would.
2: Hmm. So question,
1: mm-hmm.
2: what would you think, or how would you direct the person if they came to you with the idea that demons or devils are always messing with them or doing things to them, causing problems, and people in their lives become demons somehow and and every you know everything's coming after them spirits and stuff
1: so um it sounds like the person's having some hallucinations and um they would need to be assessed uh properly and appropriately um and then from that assessment um i would probably refer them to a psychiatrist Um, because it sounds like there is some medical intervention that's necessary um, Mm -hmm. from there. And then they definitely need some recurring um, therapy and it all depends on level of care. And so a person's symptoms is that's what determines their level of care. And so you have some um, people who require hospitalization you have some people that can seek outpatient treatment you have some people that have, you know, require medical intervention, um, meaning medication. You have some that do not. And so, Um, It all depends on, like, that person's need and their assessed level of care. And then that is how you base, like, what the next step is with them. Um, But definitely for that person, it sounds like there are are some psychotic features that are present. And so, like, those would definitely need to be addressed because they can't really engage in something like therapy um, and it'd be effective if they are reporting hallucinations. So they would need to be like really like assessed on a on a on a main scale level. And then from there, then you can decide like the best route for treatment with the patient's consent and feedback. Because if they're not consenting and feedback, you know, they don't give their own feedback, then it probably won't be effective because mm-hmm. they have to comply with it for it to be effective.
2: Wow. Interesting. So, so uh, would you go ahead. <laughs> That they usually would end up uh on some sort of medication typically or
1: it it sounds like there may be a need but again like i would really have to like sit mm-hmm. down with them and do like a full assessment and then go from there and do you... um and then that's really you know that's where the psychiatrist um would come into place
0: okay you you are you uh do you prescribe medications
1: I do not. So I am a licensed clinical social worker and, um, and I'm a doctor of behavioral health. So I'm not a psychiatrist and I'm not a medical doctor or a nurse practitioner. So I do not prescribe medication.
0: So my last question, Mm -hmm. um, coming from a, a an environment where there was spousal abuse, um, and getting into relationships where there was spousal abuse, what um what were the contributing factors is that is that just the, the I know that we we talked about the generational trauma um but my, my thought is if you stuck your hand on a stove and it burned you um you wouldn't stick your hand on the stove again but that's not that's not what's at play here so so what is at play
1: um so i think um a lot of it Comes down to again, it's we're taught whether we want to be taught or not. Like we're we we are socialized. Um, so it's that nature versus nurture, um, you know, concept. So we are socialized. We pick up social cues from our environment. As children, we learn from our environment. We're like sponges, you know, we absorb um, what's around us and I think that you know for me I've never been in a physically abusive relationship and I wasn't I wasn't physically abusive um but I was emotionally abusive and I've been in situations where um because of my history of witnessing domestic violence and that trauma I had difficulty in my relationships and I would lash out verbally and I was very like shut off. And so it's kind of like someone like I've had like guys I was dating, like I want to marry you. I love you. And I'm like, I just, I don't love you. You know, like I, that's not where I am. And it was because I was in a place where I could not And I would not allow myself to be that vulnerable to even begin to love someone like that or fall in love with someone like that. Um, And so it was a response. It was a trauma response to just kind of stay shut down and not allow myself to be open. On the other hand, my sister who was in the home with me and also witnessed the domestic violence and then also has a series of other traumas that came behind those, she grew up to attract abusers. And so almost every relationship that she's ever been in, the person has been abusive in some form or fashion, whether it's physically, emotionally, or verbally um, towards her. And so I think, again, it comes down to how we are socialized from our environment and things, I feel like there is a polarity effect that happens and so a person can be on one side of it so they can be on the negative side of the battery or the positive side of the battery you know and either one is 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 good um or or bad quote unquote but that is just how they were socialized from the events that happened. um both people meaning me and my sister, um, you know, there has to be an intervention that takes place. There needs to be therapy on both sides of things. You know, why are you getting into relationships where the person is abusive? And then why are you a person that enters relationships and you are emotionally abusive? And so, you know, like there there are, I think it, it, there has to be an intervention, like I said, on both sides. There are effects of the trauma on in both people, even though they look differently, but the effects are, you know, both of them have been affected obviously. And so it's not, it's not a choice, but it's a, it becomes a normalized thing. You know what I mean? Um, Some people's normals are don't trust anyone. Don't trust anyone. Don't trust anyone. Don't like that becomes their normal. Like that 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 may be embedded in them. You know what I mean? Yeah, and but so,
0: is that a response to the, the initial trauma? Right.
1: You saying was that the initial response? So, um,
0: so you say so that not trusting is a yeah, response that, yeah, that can be. from, from the initial trauma. Correct. Well, let me ask you yeah, this question.
1: can't
0: be. Let me ask you this question. Um, so you talked a lot about normalization, societal normalization. Mm-hmm. Uh, do you feel that we're making progress in that area or, are we still producing these relationships, these abusive relationships? Cause basically society has a responsibility in helping to terminate this kind of behavior. And so my, so I guess my question is, is, you know, are we doing enough to stop the cycle of abuses?
1: So this is the thing, and, and to answer your question, no. Um, and the reason I say no is because we have to keep in mind that we just, you know, we're, we're now coming coming out of the impact of COVID. And during, when, when COVID really hit and a lot of us were staying indoors, the numbers skyrocketed. The, the amount of, um, the number of the um, domestic violence disputes and um, the amount of domestic violence, the amount of suicides, um, those things, all that stuff skyrocketed. And it was because, you know, I, I would say then the abuser is locked in the house with the person that they abuse, you know, because we can't go anywhere and kids weren't in school. And so a lot of times like the interventions, you know, a lot of times, schools or the personnel in schools, they're the ones that make those DFACS reports or, or their Department of Family and Children's Service reports. And so when you don't have children going to school, um, those things are then being missed. And so I would say no, but I would also say realistically, is that even possible? How do we, how do we do that? How do we how do we keep an eye on the households to make sure that it's not happening? Um, I would say that we have a lot of individuals that are, you know, mandated reporters. And so anyone that is a service provider is a mandated reporter. So that's teachers, that's firefighters, that's teachers, that, I mean um, social workers, that's therapists, that's, you know, anyone in, in a helping um, position, they are mandated reporters. Um, and so I think that helps because that's really how things get reported, but then we have to look at it like this. What then happens a lot of times is that children are removed from the home or a parent is put in jail or separated from the household. And then what effect does that have on that family? What effect does that have on that child? So in some ways, it's kind of like a cycle that just goes on. It's a perpetual cycle that kind of goes on and goes on. And so at some point there has to be, like I said, um, when we first started the, there has to be a personal intervention that takes place for the cycle to be broken. So someone has to consciously break the cycle. And a lot of times it can't be someone from the outside. It has to be that actual person that's involved in the situation for the cycle to be broken.
0: Very good. That, uh, is going to have to wrap it up today. I wanted to get back to um, uh, the discussion that we had before we went on camera. I thought that was an absolutely fabulous <laughs> conversation.
2: Uh,
0: and so maybe what we can do is get you back one day um, and then we can we can try to have that conversation. So, uh, so I wanna say thank you and I appreciate you being here. You guys wanna say goodbye to the doctor? Goodbye, doctor. Goodbye. goodbye.
1: It was thank a great you guys for having me so much. Well, thank you very much. I'm going to ask you to hold
0: on a moment and then uh, I'm going to play okay. the close and then we're going to uh, say a few more things and I want to thank you. All right, everybody, we will be back tomorrow. Tomorrow's podcast is about traditions. Make sure you join us tomorrow at 2 p.m. East, 2 p.m. Eastern, 2 p.m. Central Time, right here on, on the Altitude Adjustment. Uh-huh. That concludes this episode of uh-huh. Adjustment. And thank you for listening. This podcast is streamed live on YouTube and twitch.tv and is designed for listener interaction. Visit the website, the forward slash home to join the discussion. The audio version of Altitude Adjustment is available where you get your podcasts, including Stitcher.com, the iTunes store, and the Google Play Music store to name a few. Remember that the internet is powered by your likes, shares, and comments. So please like, share, and comment on this and other episodes of Altitude Adjustment because it matters. And as always, look out for the other guy because they may not be looking out for you.